Section 14 of Mimic Live. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Prompter's Daughter by Anna Cora Mollick. Chapter 5. Operatic melodies were as familiar to Tina's infant ears as the cradle lullaby to those of ordinary children. Susan had always taken part in choruses. She possessed a sweet, though not powerful, voice, and a very accurate ear. Before her child's lisping tongue could prattle fluently, the mother commenced instructing her in one of the most important branches of her profession. Tina was in her seventh year before her musical faculties were discovered in the theater. She was then required to sing in a burlesque. The music apportioned to her was a parody upon several popular airs. The gush of bird-like melody that broke from her lips at rehearsal, the clear, warbled notes, took all ears captive, and hushed every other sound. Those within listening could not choose but mutely listen. Then her face sang, her eyes shot out vocal light, her whole frame penetrated and thrilled through and through with the spirit of melody. The leader of the orchestra was in ecstasy. Need the effect upon the audience at night be related? From that time the new songster caroled nightly to enchanted ears. Mr. Higgins announced to his stage manager that Shakespeare's Tempest would be the next attraction presented to the public. Let it not be imagined that this refined selection was an evidence of Mr. Higgins' cultivation and taste. He was merely a judicious caterer for the public amusement. He had the skill of feeling the pulse of his audiences and discovering their requirements, of high art, of the true purposes and ennobling objects of the stage, he knew nothing. The theater was simply his means of gaining a livelihood, his workshop, where dramas to suit his customers were provided and manufactured, where artisans were paid as charily as possible for their labor. As for the elevated or debasing tone, the morality or immorality of the plays presented, these were not subjects upon which he wasted a thought. It so chanced that a class of audience who supported his theater were attracted by unobjectionable plays. Such, therefore, were placed before them, dished up by Mr. Higgins, as a hotel purveyor serves his viands consulting merely the appetite, not the health, of his guest. Had the patrons of his establishment preferred plays of an opposite character, Mr. Higgins, as far as the licensor permitted, would have surfeited them with the most highly seasoned immorality that could have been concocted. The Tempest was to be produced from the original text. The reader may not be aware of the existence of a stage version in which hapless Will Shakespeare is unmercifully mutilated. The noble Prospero has a spurious scion grafted onto his stock, and the peerless Miranda is furnished with a sister, an excrescence as unresembling herself as Goneril is unlike Cordelia. The character of the dainty Ariel, the delicate sprite, belongs, according to stage conventionalities, to the singer of the theater. That its delineation should be entrusted to a child was a novel idea. 
Yet such was Mr. Higgins' proposal to his stage manager. Tina's great popularity and the spell of her flute-like music induced Mr. Higgins to make this bold experiment, a decided innovation on theatrical usage. Mr. Tuttle, accustomed as he was to bow and say aye to every suggestion of a superior, now ventured to demur. He urged that the singer of the theater, Miss Mellon, would probably throw up her engagement. The part belonged to her by right. That could be proved by all precedents. Then the music was difficult. Could Miss Trueheart master it in time? Could she execute it at all? Mr. Tuttle vehemently heaped his objections one upon another, and Mr. Higgins coolly swept them away, as though they had been a child's edifice of cards. He was one of those persons whom opposition always renders inflexible. Cast the piece, sir, with Miss Trueheart as Ariel. I will arrange matters with Miss Mellon. If she choose to throw up her engagement, so much the better. Miss Trueheart will more than fill her place. One of these days, that child is invaluable to the establishment, and I can foresee what she is destined to become. And Tina was cast for Ariel. The cast of plays is hung in a glass frame in a conspicuous part of the green room. It is the duty of every actor to inspect the cast daily. Concerning its preparation, the members of the company are not consulted by the stage manager. In all well-regulated theaters, however, every actor is entitled to a certain line of business and cannot be called upon to undertake any character which does not belong to the class for which he is engaged. Great was Susan's wonder and delight when, glancing over the cast of The Tempest, she read Tina's name as Ariel. A rehearsal was called to take place the next day. Away she ran to the stage, in hope that the business of the morning had not yet commenced, and she could communicate the good news to her husband. But the first act had that moment begun. It is an infringement of the rules for any person not engaged in rehearsing to cross the stage, or address the prompter, or in any way interfere with his duty. Susan and Robin had been accustomed to adhere strictly to all regulations, not merely from a dread of seeing their names inscribed in the awful forfeit book, which in its glaring red cover lay threateningly on the stage manager's table, but because obedience was a duty. A strict adherence to duty in trifles rendered easier the fulfillment of duty in manners of importance. Tina was not needed at the theater that morning, and there was no one near with whom Susan could share her delight. The happy mother could not speed her way home, and gladden the child with the good intelligence, and bid her commence studying forthwith, for Susan had a small part to rehearse, and could not absent herself. Soon she was summoned to the stage. She delivered her few lines, and had only to play the listener for some time. The temptation became so great that she could not forbear drawing nearer to the prompt table than customary, and, catching Robin's eye, she whispered, Oh, Robin, such good news! Robin looked at her inquiringly, and smiled because she smiled, but he was too strict a disciplinarian to induce her to say any more. At last the rehearsal was over, and Susan could give vent to her pent-up feelings of joy. 
she caught robin's arm as he gathered up his books and paper robin have you seen the cast of the tempest tina our tina is cast as ariel is it possible ariel why if you are dreaming it is miss mellon's part it is our tina's they have cast it to her come come and see and she drew him to the green room where several of the company were examining the cast one of them read aloud prospero mr oldman miranda miss lovelace ariel miss trueheart robin and susan waited not to hear the possible comments it was true and if tina was successful in this character as they felt sure she would be they might look forward to a glorious future for her already they began to build castles in the clouds they pictured her at the topmost pinnacle of her profession a star released from half the trammels that rendered the stage an existence of perpetual weariness trial mortification to underlings more they painted her in fancy independent rich bidding adieu to the stage while she was still in the bloom of womanhood giving her heart to one who was worthy of a woman's boundless devotion at whose feet she would gladly cast her laurels down rejoicing more than she ever rejoiced in wearing them to feel herself fit beside an unambitious hearth to sit domestic queen upon this vision the future their minds reveled in a species of mental intoxication never had their quiet natures been so stirred so elated when they reached home they could scarcely restrain themselves from confiding to their child all their hopes but tina's thoughts were quickly absorbed by the difficulties of the characters with the perception of an artist she felt the weight of the true artist's responsibilities a few shelves suspended from the wall held her little library five minutes after her parents entered the room she was hunting among her books for the tempest the rest of the day beheld her seated on a low stool near the window her head buried in her hands the open book upon her knees she was reading and re-reading and pondering over shakespeare's fine poetic creation and gradually moulding a conception in her own mind as to the language of ariel that was memorized almost unconsciously high cultivation will impart to the memory of an actor a rapidity in receiving impression which becomes a kind of mental daguerreotyping tina had no part to enact that evening and could remain at home before susan left for the theatre the child begged her to sing the airs which ariel executes fortunately susan was familiar with all of these peculiarly bewitching and fantastic melodies the next morning before the play was rehearsed the leader of the orchestra proposed to instruct miss trueheart in music his report to the manager was that she sang with such wonderful fidelity and expression it was a delight to teach her and what will it be to hear her at night he added enthusiastically you see mr tuttle said higgins with a self-congratulating air my judgment has proved somewhat better than yours sir mr tuttle very humbly admitted the fact asserting that it was no wonder for mr higgins judgment was always better than that of anybody else and nobody was more willing to admit this superiority than mr tuttle himself 
all the theatre was in a state of excitement at the expected performance for in spite of the jealousies which would seem inseparable from the profession true genius once recognized wins an involuntary reverence envy gives place to a species of characteristic generosity and actors are magnetically attracted towards an individual whose talent surpasses their own even miss mellon came to the wing to hear tina sing at rehearsal and found no fault except that which was contained in the remark shakespeare's ariel was not a child that's what makes it ridiculous ariel was a sprite a spirit retorted one of tina's warm admirers and i suppose as none of us ever saw a sprite or a spirit either it would be difficult to give any authority for its not being impersonated by a wonderfully gifted child a week elapsed during which the tempest was rehearsed daily then came the appointed night for its performance the fair fragile child in her gossamer robe looped here and there with sprays of bright seaweed with her shining filmy wings her floating hair interwound with branches of white and scarlet coral her girdle and bracelets of shells looked the island sprite indeed a being scarce earthly robin had not seen her aerial attire for the piece was one that required the closest attention and tasked all his powers the prompter's seat was a sort of nook on the right hand of the stage close to the audience it is worth describing a high desk with a tall stool on one side five leathern pockets marked letters for first act for act second for act third for act fourth for act fifth a sixth pocket with marriage contracts parchment wills and various legal documents near the desk are fixtures for turning off gas to darken the stage or turning it on to increase the light a speaking trumpet through which the prompter directs the musicians a little bell the wire of which runs upward to the flies and gives notice to elevate or lower the curtain a second bell for the descent of golden cars from which mythological personage alight upon the stage or for lowering of rose-tinted clouds where cupids and other visionary beings make their appearance then there is a peephole through which the prompter has a view of the stage and can watch the actors a second peephole not legitimate by means of which he can get a bird's-eye view of the audience here sat robin in the midst of these stage appliances anxiously waiting until the moment came when tina half bounded half glided on the stage exclaiming to prospero all hail great master grave sir hail i come to answer thy best pleasure be it to fly to swim to dive into fire to ride on the curl clouds to thy strong bidding task ariel and all his quality her appearance evoked a tremendous burst from the audience which reverberated loudly and long it would be useless to attempt to describe the quaint original inimitable acting after the scene with prospero ariel next appears luring in ferdinand to whose eyes the spirit is supposed to be invisible 
Ariel is playing on a lyre-like instrument and sings. Come into the yellow sands and then take hands. Curtsied when you have kissed, the wild waves twist. Foot it featly here and there, and sweet sprites the burden bear. Burden. Hark, hark, bow, wow, the watchdogs bark. Hark, hark. I hear the strain of strutting chanticleer, cry cock-a-doodle-doo. The very first notes, ringing with silvery clearness from her lips, brought the actor from the green room to cluster around the wings. At the close of the air, not a few of their hands spontaneous joined in rapturous applause of the audience. As the melody ceases, Ferdinand says in a tone of wonder, Where would this music be? in the air in the earth it sounds no more and sure it waits upon some god of the island sitting on a bank weeping again the king my father's wreck this music crept by me on the waters allaying both their fury and my passion with its sweet air thence i have followed it or hath it drawn me rather but tis gone no it begins again ariel sings Full fathom five thy father lies, Of his bones are coral made, Those pearls that were his eyes, Nothing of him that doth fade, But doth suffer a sea change, Into something rich and strange, Sea nymphs hourly ring his knell, Hark I hear them ding-dong dell, Burden, ding-dong dell, we cannot follow the performance step by step, but hasten to the more important close. It is usual for Ariel to appear flying across the stage. This flying process is generally performed by a double, costumed closely to resemble the true Ariel. It would have been difficult to have found a child that so nearly resembled Tina as to deceive the audience and to destroy an illusion is to rob any play, especially one highly poetical, of a powerful charm. It was therefore arranged that she should execute the feat herself, but not until the close of the fifth act, when Prospero gives Ariel his liberty. To produce the appearance of flying, wires, invisible to the spectators, are attached by means of hooks and a strong band to the shoulders and waist of Ariel. The child first mounts a high platform on the right of the stage, behind the scenes, by aid of pulleys, she along the wires, but apparently floated through the air. In this manner she transverses the whole length of the stage. As she passes out of sight of the audience on the left hand, the wires are gently lowered until her feet touch the ground. The sensation experience is singular and rather terrifying, but the child of genius was too much absorbed in her part to be susceptible to fear. The fifth act commenced. Tina had thrown around the audience her most potent spells, singing, Where the bee sucks, there suck I, In a cowslip's bell I lie, There I couch when owls do cry, On the bat's back I do fly, After summer merrily, merrily, merrily Shall live I, Under the blossom that hangs on the bough. Twice more, Ariel appears for a few more moments. Once the master and boatswain amazingly follow, then driving in Caliban, Stefano, and Trinculo. 
The faithful sprite then receives the promised boon of liberty from Prospero. There is a slight transposition of the original passages to give the performer a few moments to prepare for her aerial traveling. The time allowed is very short. After her exit, Tina bounded up the ladder, closely followed by her watchful mother. Susan had never felt prouder, more exulting, more hopeful in her life. Alas, for such moments in the human heart. Mr. Gildersleeve was standing on the platform. He carefully adjusted the wires to Tina's waist and shoulders and tested their strength, then gave a signal to the carpenters above. The pulleys were drawn. Ariel appeared before the audience in midair. The waving of those graceful arms moving the light wings, while the ransom spirit smiled farewell to the group upon the stage. How the people cheered! Many rose in their seats and leaned forward. The illusion was so perfect it seemed as though she must be winging her flight through the atmosphere without support. The floating form was almost out of sight when suddenly it stopped. The arms were still waving, the light wings responded, but the figure remained immovable. The wires, in some explicable manner, had become entangled. The pulleys refused to work. The child, heaven guard her! She was suspended immediately over one of the side lights used to illumine the back portion of the stage. A heart-rending shriek that pierced every ear burst from Susan's lip and gave the first announcement of impending danger. Regardless of the audience, she dashed frantically across the stage, crying, Cut the wires! My child! My child! She will be burned to death! Beneath the spot where hung the child, she fell upon her knees, flinging up her despairing arms, and uttered cry after cry, which broke out from the very depths of her tortured soul. All was confusion. Numbers of the audience leaped upon the stage, which was now thronged with actors. The carpenters, apparently paralyzed with fear, vainly strove to make the pulleys do their duty. Mr. Higgins ran from the box-keeper's office, exclaiming, "'Save her! That child is the most valuable person in my establishment! A reward for the man that saves her! Save her for my sake! Save her!' Not for the poor child's sake, not for the sake of her agonized parents, but because she was of value to him, a sordid man offered a reward that her life might be saved. As if humanity contained a monster that could save her for a reward, who could have saved her and did without. Thus far, Tina, with wonderful heroism, had remained in a state of stony quietude, though perfectly conscious of her danger, but now the intense pain of her scorching feet, every moment increasing, drew from her the most piteous wails. And where was Robin, the only person present who retained anything like presence of mind? He had rushed down to the property room, snatched a hatchet, seized the ladder on the right of the stage, dashed down the platform which it supported, and, with strength imparted by terror, the usually feeble cripple was seen bearing the heavy ladder across the stage as powerfully as though it were held in a titanic grasp. He placed it beside his child, mounted as lightning flashes, severed the wires with strong blows of the hatchet, and caught the child in his arms, just as her gauzy raiment became one sheet of flame. Fortunately, he had not loosed from his neck the cloak which he always wore at night, to protect him against the draughts that whistled around his exposed seat. 
the child was quickly enveloped in the ample folds and the flames extinguished there was a physician among the crowds of people who in the hope of rendering assistance had gathered upon the stage accompanied by him tina was borne to the green room but oh what a spectacle for her mother's eyes her tiny silver slippers were literally burned from her feet and a large portion of the silk stockinette which encased her limbs was also consumed how the flames had fed on her delicate flesh excruciating were the little girl's sufferings while the stockinette was gradually removed yet less terrible than those of her parents susan would not yield up her child to other hands though her own shook violently as they performed the trying offices tina ever thoughtful of her mother in spite of the torturing pain uttered not a single cry and only now and then an irresistible moan escaped her lips the oil with which the burns were immediately bathed produced a soothing effect and her mangled limbs were now covered with raw cotton and tenderly bound up she lay upon a small sofa from which it was found impossible to remove her without danger dr weldon ordered her to remain undisturbed that night with what altered feelings susan and robin sat down to watch beside her their exulting pride had suddenly been changed almost to despair yet were their hearts full of thankfulness that their child's life had been spared but the shock to her constitution must be so great those burns were so terrible might she not yet die neither dared ask that question but it shone in the eyes of both when they looked into each other's faces for comfort after pity curiosity and interest had all been satisfied the green room was gradually deserted save by susan and robin they sat together hand clasped in hand the whole of that long fearful night watching their child an opiate had caused a half-sleep but the pain did not seem wholly lulled she lay with her eyes partially open for their shining blue glittered through the long lashes her breath was labored and now and then she flung her arms from side to side and feebly groaned the kind physician returned soon after daylight and ordered the little sufferer to be carried upon the sofa to her home mr gildersleeve of the carpenters who had remained in the theatre all night would have borne her but the poor hunchback insisted that he himself must aid tina was covered with shawls the father took the head of the couch and the sympathizing property man the foot and they set out susan walked by the side of her child the carpenter followed for he well knew that robin's strength would give way it was too early in the morning to meet any but a few stragglers and these paused in surprise and pity and some asked questions of the carpenter one woman said to another as they passed that's the poor lamb who was nearly burned to death last night she looks as white as if she were dying now what words for the mother's ears robin heard them also they curdled his blood and took from his limbs their remaining strength set her down gildersleeve i i can't i can't take another step they set down the sofa tina was now quite conscious the fresh morning air had revived her she opened her eyes and said in a faint tone i am better father 
I'm so glad you're taking me home. The carpenter now occupied Robin's place, and Robin walked beside Susan, who sorely needed his support. As she clung to his arm, she whispered, That woman said she was so white that... But she's always white, Robin, dear. You know she's so fair. She's not whiter than usual, is she? In a few moments, they were at the door of their humble lodgings. The sofa was carried up the narrow stair with some difficulty, and at last the prompter's family was once more in their own neat but poverty-betoking room. Tina uttered no groan as her father lifted her up and laid her tenderly on her bed, though every movement rendered her sufferings more acute. Ah, oh, my birdie, my birdie, this is a terrible blow to befall you, said the anguished parent. Father, she whispered, did you not tell me that good comes out of every affliction which we bear patiently? I mean to be patient, oh, so patient, if you and mother will help me. We will help you, my own birdie. We will all be patient, and the Lord will not take thee, our only treasure away from us. No, he will not. Not, not unless it be for your best good and for mine, father, replied the child. The poor prompter bowed his head. They were his own teachings. How could he rebel? End of section 14